Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Last time we saw God through his priest Melchizedek blessing Abram after Abram had successfully gone to war, having allied himself with unbelievers, with the Amorites, Mamre, Onir, and Esco, and all of their fighting men. And we saw how this was very different from Lot immersing himself into the culture of Sodom to where his daughters are going to marry Sodomites and his wife longs and, and likes the city so much that she even wants to go back when the angels lead them out. Abram allied with just pagans in a just cause to hinder evil and to restore good, stolen property, stolen people. And we saw that these are the kind of things that we should be doing in the world. When they have enough common grace to recognize and oppose evil, we should thank God for them. We don't bring them into the church. We work together with them as part of the state, which activity theologians refer to as co-belligerency co-belligerency. The church would have a very difficult sojourn, beloved, without the Mamrys and the Onairs and the Eskals of this world. It would. Being co-belligerent with us against evil. Think of Claudius Lysias, the noble Roman centurion in Acts 22 and 23, who wades into the rioting crowd and literally saves Paul's life. And then later, discovers a plot to kidnap and murder Paul and thwarts it simply because he was a just man. Even as an unbeliever, he had common grace to recognize and protect life. Or think of Cyrus, the emperor, who sends the Jews back to the promised land, who says, build your temple. The Jews prayed and praised God for Cyrus because he was a blessing to them. Think of King Ahasuerus siding with Esther against the wicked Haman, saving all the Jews, this pagan king. God used all of them. And God uses unbelievers in our lives today. And we should thank God for them. And we should be pleased and grateful to even be able to work together with them on those causes that are against evil. Not on having them come and, and teach the Bible to us when they don't even believe. That's a different situation. And there's a world of difference between siding with just and noble pagans in worldly just causes and bringing in false teachers who say they are one thing and are not. We don't tolerate that at all. But we are glad to work with pagans on doctrines and on causes that are just and good and true. And again, they're made in the image of God. They do know God. They do know right from wrong. And to the degree that they're not suppressing it, we see them do good things in the world, right? My neighbors one time brought my garbage can up. Praise God. I'm glad they did that. I'm not going to say, don't do it. You're an unbeliever. What kind of lunatic would do that? Well, in today's text, we find one of the most important doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Its first expression in scripture is right here. And it is. The article, as Martin Luther said, upon which the church stands or falls. And it is the hinge, as John Calvin said, upon which everything turns. We can mess up a lot of things. But if we mess up justification, when we die, we go to hell. This is the most crucial doctrine that I can preach to sinners. This may be one of the most important sermons that I've preached at this church in 20 years. Because this doctrine is under serious attack in our day. 
The federal vision movement that arose in the 1990s and the early 2000s is back. It is back with a vengeance. Even though all the Reformed churches condemned it, even though all the Reformed churches threw out their teachers, they started their own church. Even though none of the Reformed publishers were published any of their books, they started their own publishing house. Even though none of the Reformed journals, the respected and vetted journals, will publish any of their articles, they have their own journal and their own university, and they are growing. The three most Reformed and godly ministers that I know in this area Jeff Stuyvesant of the Covenanters, who teaches full-time at the seminary. Brilliant, orthodox, sound reform theology. Jack Kinnear, taught at the seminary, taught the doctoral program. Solid reformed, was called another R.C. Sproul in this area for a while. And Dave Kenyon, one of the most faithful and godly and orthodox, solid, conservative reformed men I know, approached me and said, on their own, federal vision is back and in our churches and we are very concerned. And I am very concerned. Because this isn't something about disagreeing on end times. This isn't something about, well, let's debate the timing and mode of baptism. Something that real Christians disagree on. This is about the heart and soul of the gospel. And I prayed to God as I prepared this sermon. And about midnight, and I wanted to go to bed a lot earlier, but I couldn't sleep. And I opened my Bible to Galatians chapter 1 where the apostle Paul writes if we or even an angel from heaven were to preach to you any gospel other than what you have received let him be accursed I say again as I said before if anyone comes to you and preaches any gospel then what has been preached to you, let him be accursed. Or do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The easiest thing for me in the world would be to ignore it, not do anything, continue to pretend like everything's awesome. But I haven't been at this church for 20 years doing that. If I see something threatening this flock, I address it from the pulpit. I've done it with theological liberalism. I did it when they were trying to make women officers in the church. I led the charge at Presbyterian over that one. And I did it with wokeism and this false teaching of the new morality of critical race theory and intersectionality and everything else. We address falsehood from the pulpit. That's what providence does. And so I pray for you that if you are being beguiled by this, that you would on your own receive the word and turn back. Ask God to forgive you. That's the beautiful thing about justification. He knows you're a sinner and he knows you don't deserve it and you confess your sins and you're restored. And so if you've been flirting, you don't need to come with me. You don't need to come to me and confess this. I'm not a priest. Confess it to God. Turn back to the gospel. I pray that that would be the case for you today and for our church. God would protect us and deliver us from this threat, this existential threat to the church of Jesus Christ. God is on the throne. He's going to keep his church, but sometimes he puts them through trials. And I have no doubt that we're just beginning this trial. No doubt at all, because the federal vision is not going away. That was the thing. We all thought we dealt with it in the 2000s. We decreed it's heretical, threw them out, forgot about it. 
It's going to be here when I'm dead and gone. It is here to stay. And we need to be on guard. So give your attention to the doctrine that we need to hear to arm ourselves against falsehood. The doctrine of justification by faith alone that we first see in this text in Scripture. This is the holy and perfect word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring indeed. One born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. But one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts. I beseech thee, O God, in Jesus' name, amen. To hold on to this doctrine, beloved, you must first of all believe God cares for you. You must believe God cares for you. Verse one, after these things, after the victory, after the war, after the battle, after he refused the spoils, Didn't take a sandal strap. God comes to him. The word comes in a vision. So some visible manifestation that allowed Abram to see something that made him know this was God. You've got to know it's the word of God to be able to believe it. So Abram knows God is coming to him in a vision. The first thing God says to him is do not be afraid. Isn't it interesting? To face God in a vision is more terrifying than to go to war against four kings because God never told him To not be afraid before he went to war. But that's not the only reason Abram would be tempted to fear. He's just defeated four kings of powerful armies. The Bible does not say he wiped them out. He pursued them and they fled. Ketelammer is still out there with his armies. And he might come back now. Plus, now everybody knows who Abram is. Who's this Bedouin who just conquered these four kings who just is now chief of the land and yet refuses to take it by force. Who is he? Let's find out. Let's stop him. Let's get on his side. Let's send spies into his camp. Abram is in a hostile land of hostile peoples. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land and now they know his name and they want to figure out who is this guy. Is he a threat? That's kind of a scary place to be, to be known in a dangerous place. And Abram sent 318 men to war And he had to provide for them. And that war took them 300 miles to Damascus and back. That's at least three weeks. 318 men, all their supplies. He would have lost men. He'd have men wounded now. His house is considerably smaller now. He's lost men. He's lost wealth. And he didn't get any back because he refused to take any back. And so God comes to him and he says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I'll bet you Abram had just set his shield down. I'm really your shield. Isn't it interesting that later Paul will call faith a shield? Take up the shield of faith? Because faith is the only way we can have God. And God is our shield, therefore faith 
is our shield, according to the Apostle Paul. It's an appropriate symbol because we go through uncertainties. We don't often have to go to war, though some Christians do. But we go through uncertainties, we go through storms, we go through trials. And when God's providence appears to go against his promises, we are tempted to turn to sin or to turn to our works or maybe even to blame God. And what God is reminding Abram is, yes, you gave up all that reward, but your real reward is me. And that's the thing, beloved, no matter what trial you're facing this morning, no matter what storm you're facing, no matter how bad it looks, your God is still with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is your shield. He is your exceedingly great reward. That means that our God is over the storm, greater than the storm. And whatever you give up for God, it's worth it. Abram gave up all that wealth, all the treasure. Keep it all, the king of Sodom said. Just give me the people. Abram said, I don't want any of it. I serve the Lord. I'm not a mercenary. And God said, don't worry, Abram. I'm your reward. Abram was an heir of God, scripture says. And do you know what? Calvin says, the same blessing is promised to us all God alone is sufficient for the perfection of a happy life. That's what Calvin says. Calvin, the happy theologian. For the perfection of a happy life. Right? God alone. And sometimes he tests us and he takes things away. And he says to you, what's more important? What's more important? I mean, what happens if it comes to that? You know, some people lose their parents. Is your parents more important than God? Now, I have siblings, one sibling who doesn't believe. Am I going to side with him over God? What about your spouse? Do you side with your spouse over God? Your children, are they more important than God? If it came to it, would you choose God over them? If God is your reward, you have to say yes. If something else is your God, then you'll say no. And you'll choose that first. Whatever is first is your God. God hasn't promised us an easy life, a happy home, health, wealth. He hasn't promised us anything except he will be with us. And he will save us. And we will have eternal life. But you may get beheaded like the Apostle Paul. You may get sawn in two like Isaiah. A lot of bad things happen to very, very good Christian people. Because this world is not our home. We are heirs of God Galatians 4, 7, through Christ, we are all heirs of God. God is our inheritance. And that's got to be sufficient. And I believe that was sufficient for Abraham. So why, why does he say what he says in verse 2? But Abraham said, Lord God, why will you give, what will you give me? Okay, you're my reward. What will you really give me? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. If he was saying that, he is to be blamed. And I think God would have rebuked him. But there is no rebuke in this text. If anything, God is propitious to him. How are we to understand this? Well, thus far in the text, God has appeared to Abram since chapter 12 three different times. And on those three different times, he gave him these promises. But you've got to understand that they're all the same. Even with the different promises, they're all promising the same foundational thing. That God will be his God. I am your shield. I am your reward. And four times in those three appearances, descendants, descendants, seed, Hebrew, zarah, zarah, 
Four times. Four times in three years. God has made it evident. He's made it clear to Abram that the way in which the blessing that I'm promising you is going to come to pass is somehow through your seed. Right? Abram's a faithful believer in God. So he would have known of the seed promise to the woman. And when God promises him, the whole world will be blessed through your seed. He knows that the, the hope of humanity is coming through him. And that's what he can't figure out. Because he can't have kids. And so this isn't a question of unbelief. This is a question of faith. Okay, God, I know it has to be through my children, but Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. That's what he says in verse 2. He's not understanding how God's going to do this. It's a question of faith, seeking understanding. And so he says in verse 3, in a sense, he answers his own question in verse 3. He asks it again and answers it. Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, One born in my house, Eliezer is my heir. And they did that in those days. If you didn't have children as an heir, you would make your servant, your chief servant, your most trusted servant, your heir. He would carry on your name, take possession of your possessions and so forth. And and there's records of that going back thousands of years. If you've watched the the, uh, Charlton Heston movie, Ben-Hur, right? That's how Ben-Hur gets out of the galleys and so forth. He becomes the adopted son of whoever it was who rescued him. Uh, He rescues him on the shipwreck. And he, he gets everything. Well, that's what Abrams is, is saying. Okay, it's going to be my seed. I can't have seed. It must be Eliezer. And so he's saying, okay, I guess that's the answer because you're not giving me children. So this is, a, this is a question of faith. Otherwise, it makes no sense as to why he suddenly would do this. Calvin says, seeing that all the promises depend upon his seed, Abram does not improperly require that a pledge should be given to him And this is why God regards it with favor. This is still Calvin. The complaint of his servant and immediately gives a propitious answer. God doesn't rebuke Abram at all. He hasn't done anything inappropriate. He's not questioning, again, God. He's he's questioning how this is going to be brought to pass. He doesn't understand what he's supposed to do next. And so we are to recognize that in this text, there are some unique things to Abram. Abram you know, we're, we're, we're not the chosen line of the Christ. We're not a type of the Christ and a type of the kingdom so that we have to become a nation and multiplication and have this land that we're not allowed to sell. All that stuff that's coming. All the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through us. That's all fulfilled in Jesus. That's happened. And now we witness to the one who is the blessed seed and so forth. But we are to bring our complaints to God. And that's what Abram does. He brings his complaint to God. Bring your complaint to God. Don't complain of God. Don't ever do that. But complain to him. Cry out to him. Bring your troubles. Bring your pain. Bring your heartache to him. The Psalms are filled with that. David's tears wetting his bed. Jesus crying out with loud tears, Hebrews said. And he was heard for that reason. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. For God is a refuge for us. You have to know that God cares for you in order to hold on to justification by faith alone. Secondly, you have to believe in God for eternity. You have to believe in God for eternity. So God corrects Abram in verse four. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body will be your heir. It won't be by adoption, Abram. It's going to be by a biological son. And then he takes him out. In this wonderful verse in verse 5. Then he brought him outside so the vision happened inside. Isn't that a neat little detail? And it's night. 
Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to number them. If you've ever been somewhere where there's no lights, there's no street lights, there's no cars, like out in the woods. And it's a clear night and there's no moon or no full moon. But it's better when there's no moon. You can actually see not just individual stars. You can see the nebula. The dust of space. It's visible to the naked eye. We never see it now because we got lights everywhere. But you can see it. And that's what God would have shown Abram. And he would have saw innumerable stars. And God does this to strengthen his faith. Calvin says it this, this way, quote, The faith of Abram was increased by the sight of the stars. For the Lord, after his word, reached his ears, also arrests his eyes, listen, by external symbols to further impress upon Abram the truth of the promise. He used an external symbol. The stars aren't going to make you have kids. But it helped him to believe the word. That's exactly how the sacraments function. They're not something alongside the word, something different from the word. They point us back to the word because it's only by believing the gospel that we can be saved. That does not wash sins away and it doesn't ensure regeneration. It says, if you believe, this will happen. And the parents are taught that for their own children. That's why the vow is, believe, do you believe for yourself and for your children? The children don't believe yet as far as we know. We don't know. Maybe God can give an infant an infant kind of faith. We know he can save them and unite them to Christ. But they have to believe. There's no other way to be saved. And that's a picture. God will do on your heart what this water does on your body if you believe, you'll be united to Christ if you believe. That doesn't unite anybody to Christ. Protestants have never believed that. Well, there are some, but not Reformed Protestants. And so we need, again, to recognize the, 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 the reality of symbol. This symbol helped Abram. It helped them to believe. It was like God saying to Abram, look, I made all that in a day. You think your barrenness is an issue to me? Seriously? You're going to have a child. All right, so that's what God in effect says to him. And Abram believed, verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. And he accounted him for righteousness. Now, what did Abram believe here? Is he just believing, oh, I'm going to have kids? Cool. That's what I wanted. No. Calvin calls it absurd that Abram would be justified before God by believing only, only in a specific promise of numerous offspring which could by no means suffice for the complete righteousness of man. God imputes righteousness to him for this faith. This can't be, oh, you're going to be a dad. There's something more going on here. This is the doctrine of imputation, which we're going to get to in a moment. But all of the promises that God has made in all three appearances, again, are summed up in this latest promise, this latest reaffirmation. God is again saying all of it to him, which can be summarized by, I will be your God. I am your inheritance. I will be your salvation. And the children and all the other promises, the land, those are subservient. Those are tokens to that. Those are things God's going to do because Abram is his son now. Calvin says it this way, quote, The believing of which Moses here speaks is not to be restricted to a single clause of the promise here mentioned or of some undefined or common seed, but the seed in which the world was to be blessed. That was the seed of the woman. Abram knows it's him now. And God has just said to him it's going to be biologically him, which he didn't know that until God explained that. 
And so God is declaring to Abram, he will be propitious to him. He will protect him. He will be his inheritance. Calvin says all the promises of God flow from his free mercy and are evidences of paternal love and gratuitous adoption on which salvation is based. That's what this promise is. I'm your father. I'm, because all the promises of God are based on that. And so that's what Abram is believing, according to Calvin, according to our fathers, and according, I think, clearly in the text. Notice what the text says in verse 6. And he believed, boy, you got to get it, in the Lord. It's a little Hebrew letter, bait, second letter of the alphabet. We would call it B. It has a bus sound, va sometimes. And it means in, and it's there. Ba-yoba. Ba-adonai, the way the Jews would read it because they don't say Hyoba. In the Lord. He believed in the Lord. He believed in the Lord as his God. In the Lord as his reward. In the Lord as his shield. In the Lord as his Savior. That's what's going on in this text, beloved. And on the basis of that faith in God, God accounts righteousness to Abram, the righteousness that we lost in the fall. God has given back by faith. Calvin says, therefore, we do not say that Abram was justified because he laid hold on a single word respecting offspring, but he embraced God as father, as his father, rather. And truly, faith does not justify us, listen, for any other reason than that it reconciles us to God and not by its own merit. It's not like faith is worth it but because of the grace offered to us that faith receives. And so golly, God offers this reconciliation freely and we receive it by faith. We believe in God for eternity. Thirdly, you must believe in God for grace. You must believe in God for grace. This is verse 6 of chapter 15. In chapter 16, Abram and, Her- Abram and um, Sarah are going to try to make the promise happen. And she gives her maid to Abram, and Abram's 85 years old. That's really important because Abram was 75 years old when he got into the land, when he left to go into the land. So for less than 10 years, but pretty close to 10 years, Abram's been sojourning in the land, and he has a relationship with God. Clearly. God's been appearing to him, speaking to him. For almost 10 years, he has a relationship with God. And still no covenant. Huh. How about that? He has a relationship with God. And still, God has not cut this covenant with him. He, is he saved? Is that what we're seeing in this text? Oh, Abram gets saved. He believed in God and God appeared with righteousness. So he wasn't saved until chapter 15? No. No theologian believes that. Why do we just get the fact that he's saved now? Well, first of all, we know from Scripture that he was, he was a man of faith the moment God called him. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. As soon as he leaves Ur, he's believing in God. God is imputing righteousness to him. As soon as he believes, and Hebrews says he believed when he didn't even know where he was going when he first left. And Hebrews goes on to say, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign country with Isaac and Jacob dwelling in tents, the heirs of the same promise. Notice it's all in one promise, that God will be your God, that you'll be his people. And it says, Abram waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what he was waiting for. He was promised heaven. He was promised the world. We saw it in Romans 4. He was heir of the world. He understood that. 
He understood what God was saying and promising to him. And so he's looking to God for grace. According to Hebrews 11, Abram's ultimate hope was heaven and eternal life right from the beginning, a city whose builder and maker is God. Calvin says the reason why Abram's faith is not mentioned until now is a very important lesson for us, that we would learn that there is no other way to be justified before God than by faith. No matter how long you've believed in God, no matter how long you've obeyed God, Calvin has, uh, he actually says, calls our attention to this, listen to this. Abram, with the excellency of his virtues, after his daily and even remarkable service of God. Think about how he left everything. How he, he was willing to give everything to Lot. How he didn't take payment for this land. His remarkable service of God, even after this, was nevertheless justified by faith. What is here related concerning the one man is applicable to all the sons of God. No matter how long you live, no matter how much you serve God, no matter how many works you want to pile up, if you think that you can ever be accepted to God on any basis other than faith, you are not a Christian. You're trusting in your works. And works don't come in at some point and clean up what faith had started. Because faith is the initiator. But then I got to be good enough. And then I got to earn it for me or my spouse or my neighbor or my children. Then it's going to be my obedience that brings salvation. That is another gospel. That is a false gospel. You're never justified by anything other than faith. The righteousness that justifies you is never your own. Not a drop of it. It is imputed. It is given to you. It is an alien righteousness. Extranos. Outside of you. God gives it. And we've got to hold on to that like grim death. It seems to me. Because if we lose that, we lose everything. We lose Christ. And that's the very thing that's been under attack, it seems to me. Calvin says, quote, the righteousness of works is not to be substituted for the righteousness of faith in any way that one should perfect what the other has begun, but that men are only justified by faith. Listen to Calvin. As long as they live in the world, there's no other way to be right before God. There's no other way to save anybody unless they believe, unless they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no works. Are there any works? No, none. They play no part. Calvin says it is necessary even that the works themselves, that we do do, he says, should be justified by a gratuitous, listen, imputation because some evil is always in them. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that in the gospel a righteousness is revealed that is from faith to faith and to faith and to faith and never to anything else. Never to works. Never to obedience. The only way to have righteousness which we need or we go to hell is by faith. And we should be teaching our children to believe and calling upon our neighbors to believe and talking about Jesus is the only way. Now, in the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of justification was the issue. And the doctrine of justification, how can we be right before a holy God, answers how sinners, guilty sinners, can be reconciled to a righteous God. Negatively, our guilt and our sin has to be removed. Positively, we have to have righteousness somehow. And both Rome and the reformers agreed that God is the one 
Who justifies us? The dispute was over how. What is the instrument of our justification for Rome? It was baptism. That's how you get right with God. You're regenerated there. You're born again without sin. That's Rome's answer. And then when you sin after that, penance, where you do your, your works, part of the penance is uh, satisfaction. Now, they didn't think your works were enough to get you into heaven, but they were to get you out of purgatory. And then you could get the, the grace of the sacrament again and you could be restored. The reformers said, no, it's by faith alone. Faith alone receives a gracious imputation of righteousness. And I said to you before, the greatest threat to this doctrine in my lifetime has been the federal vision. It's the only time I ever heard R.C. Sproul, and I was at a dozen GAs with him, the only time I ever heard him speak from the floor is when he stood up and he opposed the federal vision and he pled with the PCA, do not leave the doctrine of justification. Do not leave it behind. Do not substitute your works. Do not substitute the sacraments. The federal vision is often called, if you're wondering what it is, a return to Rome, especially with regard to the sacraments. In Reformed theology, sacramental efficacy, and we do talk about that, refers to the sign as a real sign, as an authentic seal. I had to fill out the marriage license yesterday and it has a raised seal on it from, I don't know, the governor or something, judge. And it tells me that that's an authentic marriage license. It testifies to the authenticity. That's what a seal does as a sacrament. Seal doesn't put something in. We're thinking wrongly when we think of that. Seal is God's stamp saying, yes, if you believe in Jesus, I assure you, you'll be forgiven. It's a seal from God, an assurance from God that the way of salvation is through Christ alone. That, in that sense, a sacrament is a seal. It doesn't put something in you. The word doesn't mean that. And so we believe, yes, sacramental efficacy, if you, a real sign. You can say, you could say, as Peter does at one point, baptism saves you. How? It points you to Christ. He says, not by the washing of the flesh, not by the water. We read that in our confession. It's by the testimony of a good conscience toward God. If you believe what it says with a good conscience, yes, you could say baptism saves you. You could say that minister saved me. I believed when he preached because he pointed you to Christ. Baptism points you to Christ. You could say a gospel tract saved you. How? Well, I, that's what God used to save me, pointed me to Christ, and I went to Christ. Anything that points you to Christ and you go to Christ, you could say saved you. The sacraments are pointing us to Christ. And in that sense, you could say maybe you were saved when you considered the Jesus that that's picturing. All right? But for the federal vision, the sacraments are performative acts that themselves have the power to change people and give a grace that is distinct from the word. They're not calling you back to the word. They're giving another grace along with the word. Peter Lightheart, one of their teachers, he doesn't like the term signs and seals, the historic reform term. He calls them dynamic rites. The sacraments in their proper context emphasize not sign but performance, he says. And he also doesn't like means of grace. He argues that to reduce baptism in the supper to a means for communicating information, listen to this, I love this, makes them disguised sermons. And he says they themselves are graces. They are graces. That's anathema to the gospel. And you know what? He's right. It's not, the only thing he's wrong about is disguise. It's not a disguise sermon. It's an open sermon. You can see it, but it's a sermon. It's a picture of the gospel and it's nothing more. It's a picture. It's a symbol. It's a sign. It's a seal. 
Rich Lusk says it this way, quote, preaching makes us desire what God offers us in the sacraments. Wow. It's in the sacraments that you're offered eternal life. Again, preaching communicates truth. The sacraments communicate life. Direct quote. Another Federal Vision offer. Doug Wilson, quote, the sacraments are performative acts. They change everything. They do not. They point you to Jesus. And if you don't go to Jesus, that sacrament is actually going to cause a greater judgment to come upon you. Changes nothing. Peter Lightheart, by means of baptism, baptism with water, he's distinguishing now this thing signified, which is the baptism of the heart, which only Jesus can do. By means of baptism, baptism with water. Listen, grace and salvation are conferred on the elect. Is this not a return to Rome? Doug Wilson, quote, baptism is covenantally efficacious. It brings every baptized person into an objective and living covenant relationship, listen to this, with Christ, whether the baptized person is elect or reprobate. That's crazy. And it does not bring people into a living relationship with Christ. Only faith does. Baptism pictures what will happen if you believe. It does not unite you to Christ. Our standards do not say that. Unite you to the church, unite you to other believers, never to Christ. Faith alone unites you to Christ. Beloved, the false federal vision is a false gospel. In some ways, it's worse than the health and wealth gospel. We like to make fun of the health and wealth gospel guys because they're silly, right? The way they take scripture. You know what? For all of their weirdness, they never promise heaven if you do this. They never promise eternal life. They just promise stuff in this world. These guys are promising heaven by works that human beings do. And I am concerned for you, my brothers and sisters, and I, I plead with you. If you're being beguiled by this false teaching, that you would turn from it. Let me read you one more rather lengthy quote, and this is very, very troubling. Quote, children of obedient believers will become believers. The sovereign God uses means to accomplish his purposes in election, his appointed and revealed means for the conversion of covenant children is obedient parents. Wow. As children grow up in a faithful covenant home, they will come, they will come to genuine profession of faith as a matter of course. That is justification by works, by your obedience. And you know what else it does? If your kids aren't saved, it's your fault. You talk about a fruit of contention and, and, and oppression and judgment and you're judging all these parents and you don't know a thing about what they did but you're just going to say it was their fault what wickedness does that you've condemned two thirds of the people in this room and you don't know anything about them because we can save our kids by our works by our obedience how much obedience parents where does your obedience not enough at what point are you going to stop earning it God's not going to give it anymore, however you want to say it. Beloved, there are two Gospels. The Gospel of justification by faith alone for adults and the Gospel of justification by obedient parents for children. God, I pray you don't bring that poison into your home. God, I pray that you don't. 
that you teach them the gospel, that you teach them to believe, that you pray with and for them. You know, the funny thing is, in all the stuff, and I've been studying this stuff on my study leave. I've read the whole books. They never talk about prayer for your children's salvation. They never give an extended discussion about how important it is to pray for your children to come to Jesus. You know why? Because you don't have to pray. You can do it by your obedience. It's a false gospel. This strikes at the heart of how we're saved. If you're good enough, your kids will be saved. If you're not, they'll go to hell and it's your fault. Calvin says men are justified before God by believing, not by working. They obtain grace by faith because they are unable to deserve a reward by works. They are unable to. If anyone's salvation, anyone's salvation depends upon your obedience, they're lost. They'll never be saved unless God is unholy. No reformed teacher teaches this. Nobody does. All the people that you love and read, R.C. Sproul, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Machen, Murray, you name it, J.I. Packer, Lorraine Bettner, Arthur Pink, uh, John MacArthur, I can't even think of some of, the, some of the guys, just on and on and on, J.C. Ryle, all the guys that we love, whose shoulders we stand on, they would have thought this was anathema. If anybody would preach this in our Presbyterian, I'd be the first one to try to defrock them. I taught gospel ministers for four years as the chairman of the credentials committee. I examined them. If anybody said this kind of an answer, they would have never passed presbytery. Never. Obedient parents save their children by their obedience. No way. No way. If you don't believe me, if you think I'm off my rocker, I want you to listen to what all of the reformed churches have said about the federal vision movement. All of them. You can go online later today. You can look up on the internet. Just put in PCA, position paper, federal vision. You'll get our huge statement on it. And all the quotes from all the guys I said and many, many more. The PCA concludes their report with nine specific declarations where the federal vision is, quote, contrary to the Westminster standards. I've given you two today. Two. Nine. These are our fathers in the face. I was there. We overwhelmingly approve this. The OPC, quote, advocates of federal vision are out of accord with scripture and our doctrinal standards, end quote. The URC, quote, the revisions to the doctrine of justification that are advocated by writers of the federal vision are serious errors that imperil the gospel of free acceptance in Christ, end quote. The RPCNA, our covenanter, Brothers and sisters, we stand in solidarity with our Reformed and Presbyterian brethren in rejecting as contrary to the scriptures the theological views that are genuinely, generally associated with the federal vision and the RCUS, and I could keep going, but I'm going to stop here. These are the most solid, Reformed, conservative, Bible-believing denominations in the world. The teachings of the federal vision herein reviewed and critiqued seriously undermine and are substantially at odds with the Christian gospel. In particular, we believe they promote serious error and represent a deviation from the teachings and doctrines of scripture and the reformed confessions and are another gospel, end quote. That's what's at stake, congregation. You need to believe in God for righteousness, fourthly and lastly. You need to believe in God for righteousness. What is Abram believing in God for? 
for righteousness. Is God saying Abraham is a righteous person now? No. Is God saying Abraham's faith is his righteousness? No. What does it mean when it says he believed in the Lord and he, he accounted it to him for righteousness? Is he accounting his faith for righteousness? It can't be. The it is feminine. Righteousness is feminine. Believed is masculine. You could translate it this way, and I think Young's literal translation does. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him righteousness. And since the it is righteousness because of the pronoun agreement, you could say it this way. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted righteousness to him. Upon his believing, he gave him righteousness freely, gratuitously. He didn't deserve it. We saw in our scripture reading in Romans 4, Abraham believed in a God who justified what? The obedient? The children of the obedient parents? Who justified the ungodly. And if you think you're anything else, you will not be saved. If you would never believe anything else I say, if you ever think that you're godly, or that your godliness can save your children, God have mercy on you. I pray you change before you die. Because God justifies the ungodly. Calvin says again, quote, the merit of works ceases when righteousness is sought by faith. Abram trusted in God's mere goodness and not in himself and nor in his own merits. End quote. Salvation, beloved, justification rather, is entirely unearned, unperformed, unworked. It's received by faith not by faithfulness. Abram trusted in a God for grace alone, by faith alone. And we know that it comes because of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we pray that you would help us, that you would not allow us to stray from the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints that there's no righteousness in us for ourselves, there's no righteousness in us for our children. There's no righteousness in us for anything. Our best works are filthy rags. You justify freely, gratuitously, because that's what salvation is. It is grace, and grace is your power to save. It is not a covenant relationship between persons. It is your power given to unworthy, dead sinners. That's what we are. That's what our children are. We pray you would save them. We pray you would cause them to believe. We pray you would use us as means. And we know that we can be means either way. And that's important. But you are sovereign. And we ask you to do the work that we can't do that we don't deserve. We ask you to do it for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.